Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... I felt it. Felt 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 right. I was so and I just happy. thought, well... I had figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about surprises in science. When I was a kid, they had an inventor's fair at our school one year in lieu of a uh, normal science fair, and I was really pumped about it. I had a strong feeling that my invention would definitely be the best, based on a lot of positive feedback that I was getting from my mom at the time. And I retained this confidence all the way up until the day of the inventor's fair, when I suddenly realized at the breakfast table that I had failed to invent anything. I'd totally forgotten about it. And so I thought, what can I invent right here, right now, in my kitchen before the school bus comes for this inventor's fair? And the answer came to me, a sandwich. I can invent a sandwich. And so I invented the peanut butter and jelly surprise, which, in case you're interested, is exactly the same as a normal peanut butter and jelly sandwich, except, surprise, there's a piece of ham in the middle. (laughs) Exactly what everyone wants from their peanut butter and jelly sandwich. So, uh, you will not be surprised to learn that I did not, in fact, take the blue ribbon at the Inventors' Fair that year, and I think that was the moment when my parents realized that I was never going to be a great scientist. But, I do get to talk about great science with folks like the ones you'll hear from today. It's a good transition, right? Our first story is from Matthew Dix. It was recorded in March 2018 at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was brain awareness. Uh, The phone rings. I'm standing in my classroom. It's early morning. I'm getting ready for my fifth grade students. I go and I pick it up. The woman on the other end identifies herself as the receptionist at the veterinary hospital. She tells me she has news about my dog. It's good news. She survived the first surgery. And I stop her right there and I say, no, you have the wrong owner. My dog is at the hospital, but just for constipation. Like there's no surgery involved. You've mixed something up. And the woman apologizes and says, can you just hold for a minute? And she clicks off. And as I'm waiting for her to come back, I'm thinking about how awful this must be for someone that they're... They're waiting for their dog to live or die through surgery. My dog is named Kaylee. She's a four-year-old Lhasa Apso. She's a tiny little white thing that lives in my heart. She is my best friend in the world. And I just, I can't imagine how terrible it would be to be waiting for this phone call that someone in the world is waiting for right now. When the woman clicks back, she says, your name is Matthew Dix, right? And I say, yes. And she says, your dog is Kaylee, right? And I say, yes. And she says, Mr. Dix, your dog just went through spinal surgery 
and she's getting ready to go through her second surgery. And now I'm annoyed. Like, I don't mind that there's a mistake, but don't make it twice. So I say, listen, unless you did surgery that I didn't, you know, permit, or you did surgery on the wrong dog, like, this is wrong, you're calling the wrong person, my dog is constipated. We left her at the hospital, she got a laxative, and they recommended we leave her overnight for observation. And the woman says, can you just hold one more time? And she clicks off again, and I'm just sitting on the phone thinking, like, who is taking care of my dog, and why can't they match up owner and pet properly? When the phone clicks again, it's a man now. He identifies himself as Dr. Lindgren. He says, is your name Matthew Dix? And I say, yes. And he says, is your dog Kaylee? And I say, yes. And he says, Mr. Dix, I just completed spinal surgery on your dog, and I'm getting ready to do the second surgery. She has a ruptured disc in her back. And I say, that's not possible. Like, she's constipated. And he says, Mr. Dix, we spoke last night in the middle of the night. I explained all of this to you, and you gave me permission to do this surgery. And my heart sinks. I think I know exactly what's happened. And so I ask him, can I call you back in a couple minutes? And he says, no, I will be operating on your dog. We can't wait. So he gives me the name and the number of another doctor, and he says, call this doctor for information. I hang up the phone and I run. I run out of my classroom and I take a left up the ramp to my fiance's classroom. She works two doors down from me. When I left this morning, she was still asleep, but she's probably coming in right now. It's about the time she comes to work. And as I burst through her door, she's coming through the opposite door. She's got her coat on. She's got bags. I'm panting. She looks up at me and she says, is Kaylee okay? And I say, do you know about a surgery? And she says, yes. And now I know exactly what has happened. I've been sleepwalking all of my life. Since I was a little boy, I would get out of bed a couple hours after going to sleep and come down the stairs, and I'd sit on the couch next to my parents. They would be watching a movie or the Celtics. And sometimes I would just sit and I'd stare at the TV. But a lot of the times I would talk to them, and they would talk back to me. They would ask me questions that I would never acknowledge in real life. They're like horrible people who would just draw information from me that no child would ever admit to. So, like, what girls do I like and what teachers do I hate and which one of them do I like the most right now? And then the next morning at breakfast, they would, like, bring all this stuff back up and make fun of me. It was like a joy to live with these people. But I did this all the time. People imagine sleepwalkers as someone who close their eyes and sort of wander around the room with their hands outstretched, but it's really not like that at all. I always describe it as having two operating systems. I have the primary one, which is operating right now, taking care of all of my functions. But when I go to sleep, occasionally a second operating system comes online. And it's just like the first one. I can do just about everything that I can do awake that I'm doing while I'm sleepwalking, except the two operating systems don't know that each other exists. And so I never remember anything that I'm doing while I'm sleepwalking. I'll get out of bed. It's usually a couple hours after a person's gone to sleep that they'll start sleepwalking. Just before REM sleep is about to begin, people will get up and start wandering around. Uh, sleepwalkers tend to get out of bed and sleepwalk at times of stress, when they're overtired, if they've taken a medication they've never taken before, or they're in a new place, a new bed or a, a new location they've never been in before. 
So when I was a Boy Scout, we would go camping in the woods and I would get out of my tent in the middle of the night and just walk into the woods, into the dark, until I tripped on a root or a rock and it woke me up. And then I would look around and I have no idea where I was in the dark, so I'd have to sit at the base of a tree and I'd wait all night until eventually my friends at camp would wake up and I'd hear them and I'd be able to wander my way back to camp. When I got older and I was on my own, I was a McDonald's manager and I would often find myself, I'd wake up and I'd be behind the wheel of my car in the parking lot with my McDonald's uniform on, just ready to drive away, but thankfully never actually doing so. (laughs) But it was a terrifying thing to figure out, am I in the parking lot or am I actually driving somewhere down the street? Nowadays, sleepwalking takes me to many places. I often find myself sitting on the couch at night with the remote in my hand, pointing it at the TV that is not on. The thing I do most often is I eat cereal at night. And I only know this because I'll come down in the morning and I'll find a half-eaten bowl of Cheerios on the counter. And oftentimes there's a book or a magazine next to it and it's open. And I have no recollection of reading the pages and I don't even really know if I did. But I'm just, I'm consuming vast quantities of cereal in the middle of the night. (laughs) Recently, I made the terrible decision of agreeing to two deadlines to two different books at the same time, which no writer should ever, ever do. And so I was under a lot of pressure. One morning I came down and I found that my laptop was open and there were 500 words written on my laptop for the novel I was working on that I have no recollection of ever writing. The words didn't actually match like what was already there. They were the beginning of the next chapter, but they were good enough that they are still the beginning of the next (laughs) chapter. I am writing books in my sleep. That is serious productivity. So it's not totally weird that I've had this phone call with this veterinary person, but it is really kind of crazy. And Alicia doesn't even believe at first that this has happened. She says, Matt, we were awake. We turned on the lights. You were on the phone. And I say, I don't remember any of it. I say, what is happening? And she tells me that in the middle of the night, they discovered that it wasn't constipation, that Kaylee was having a spinal issue, and that she had a rupture in one of the discs, which is something that happens to these little dogs with these long backs. And so the doctor told us that she had to have a first surgery to clear out the debris, and she had a 50% chance of surviving that surgery. And then she had to have a second surgery, the one that's happening right now, which would restabilize her spine, and she has a 50% chance of surviving that surgery. And even if she survives both both of them, she has a less than 50% chance of really ever walking again. And it's most likely that she's going to end up in a doggy wheelchair with her hind legs on wheels and her front legs pulling her around. And that for the rest of her life, we will have to catheter her and have a colostomy bag because she won't be able to do any of those functions for herself. And the operation costs $7,000, which is the amount of money that we have saved for our, our upcoming honeymoon. And I asked Alicia, we agreed to all that? And she says, yes. And I didn't realize that, like, there were different depths of love. Like, Kaylee is our dog, but at the time, she's my dog. I started with her, and she's not an easy dog to live with. Uh, And Alicia said yes instantly, like, without question. Like, I stared at my future wife, and I just couldn't believe how much more I was in love with her. 
And so I wait for the phone call, which comes three hours later, and they say she survived the second surgery. And I say, do you think she'll walk? And he said, it's very unlikely, but we don't know. It'll be a long time before we know. I get to bring Kaylee home three days after the surgery. We have to get the house ready before we bring her home. She can't jump up or down off anything, so we take our bed down because she sleeps with us at night. We sleep on a mattress on the floor, and we build a cage around the mattress because we can't even let her get off the mattress. So for months, Alicia, myself, and Kaylee will sleep on the floor on a mattress in a cage. We push things up against the furniture that she often jumps up on because we really can't have her come up on anything at all. When we bring her home, she's a waste of what she used to be. She is, she's lost weight and she's shaven, but the worst thing is she's just sad. Like she's a dog who just had a terrible thing happen to her and she has no idea why someone has done this thing. And there's no way to explain to her that this terrible thing had to happen to you so you could keep living. And so just she walks around with her head down, and I know that she's in incredible pain. And so we put her on a, on a towel next to us on that first night, and she's just, she's just lying there, and she really hasn't moved at all. And we watch TV, and we wait until she finally falls asleep. And then we move over to the couch, and we're watching TV on the couch when I see her head pick up, and she looks at me. And she starts to struggle up on her front legs. And I want to stop her because it's like too early for her to even try to walk around. But I watch as she lifts up her hind legs too. And before I know it, she's standing on all four legs. And she starts to hobble over towards us, one tiny step at a time. She's walking. I call the doctor the next day and I tell her, I say, she's already walking And he says, that's impossible. And I say, I know, but it happened. Kaylee's 16 years old today, and she is still with me. Every morning I wake up, and the first thing I do is I check to see if she's still breathing, because she is an old dog. (laughs) She has bad skin that makes the entire house smell. (laughs) She is completely deaf. She is slightly blind. She doesn't run anymore. But she hobbles around our house, and she eats, and she snores, and she still sits at my feet while I write every single morning. I've been asked many, many times, do you think you would have made that decision if you hadn't been sleepwalking? If you had been fully awake, would you have agreed to those ridiculous odds and spent that enormous amount of money on your dog? And I understand the question. It's a reasonable question to ask if you're not me. But if you're me, you know that Kaylee was a thing that I loved as much as anything else in the world. And she still is. She is a member of our family. If you're me, or if you're Alicia, you know that there really wasn't a decision to make that night whether you were awake or whether you were asleep. When the doctor called and gave us the odds and told us how much it was going to cost, I know it was an easy decision. It was a decision I could have made in my sleep. Thank you. That was Matthew Dix. 
Matt is an elementary school teacher and the internationally best-selling author of the novels Memoirs of an Imaginary Friend, Something Missing, Unexpectedly Milo, and The Perfect Comeback of Caroline Jacobs. As a storyteller, he is a 34-time Moss Story Slam champion and a four or possibly now five-time Grand Slam champion. He is the founder and creative director of Speak Up, a Hartford, Connecticut-based storytelling organization that just launched a storytelling podcast of their own where they actually critique the stories. And one other thing about Matt, he actually just came out with a guide to storytelling called Storyworthy, Engage, Teach, Persuade, and Change Your Life Through the Power of Storytelling. So if you've been thinking that you'd like to try your hand at storytelling, I highly recommend Matt's book, despite the fact that there is actually a chapter in it called This Book is Going to Make Aaron Barker Very Angry. I can assure you, I like it very much. I planned this theme of surprise this week because it's my birthday, and I thought it would be fun to have surprises for my birthday. It only occurred to me lately that it's not really a surprise if I've planned it. But if you would like to give me a birthday present, as I assume naturally all of you do, there are two things that you could do that would really mean a lot to me. You could write Story Collider a review on iTunes. That helps us move up in the rankings and helps others find the podcast. And it's part of our mission to share these stories as widely as we can. So I would really appreciate that. And the other thing you could do is send us your mini stories to read on the podcast. I'm hoping to get a chance in some of our upcoming episodes to read some very short stories from our listeners on the podcast, and I would really like to hear from you about your experiences with science, especially if you have a story you'd like to share but you don't live near one of our cities. So if you have something you'd like to share, email me a very short, just like two-paragraph long story at stories at storycollider.org and put podcast in the subject line, and I might be able to share it with our listeners here. And if it inspires you, some of our upcoming themes are loneliness, me versus my brain, bright ideas, and help. And once again, that email address is stories at storyclutter.org. So without any further ado, on to our next surprise. Our second story today is from Simon Donner. Simon developed this story over the course of just a couple of days as part of a workshop we conducted in Vancouver last December for ocean scientists, and he performed it at the show we held at the Anza Club there on the last day. The show and workshop were made possible by the Tiffany & Co. Foundation, which seeks to preserve the world's most treasured landscapes and seascapes. It's 2 a.m. I'm in Madagascar, and it's the middle of the wet season. The air is completely still, and it's hot. That type of sticky tropical heat where you don't want anything to touch your skin. So I'm lying on top of the sheets. I would levitate above them if I could. (laughs) And I'm completely naked. Listen, (laughs) no one said science is pretty. (laughs) So... And I just desperately want to get to sleep. And then a man falls out the window above me and lands on top of me on the bed. (laughs) The trip had not been going well. I had come to Madagascar to visit a coral reef field program. It was a project being run by a conservation group. Uh, At the time, my research was more on the computer modeling side. I was studying how climate change was affecting the world's coral reefs. And I started doing field work, but I felt that I needed to learn more 
about how to run a project like the one these people had. And they were nice enough to say I could come and as a visiting scientist for six weeks or a couple months. So I packed myself off there, traveled around Madagascar, but they warned me one thing. I might be coming a little bit off schedule and I might miss their transport. Now, the, the city nearby was only 150 kilometers away. So I thought, well, what's the big deal? I'm sure I can get there. And I, I did miss the transport. So I was able to find out with, with some help that there was a fishing company, a French company that drove trucks up and down the coast, picking up squid from all the villages. So I managed to get a lift from the fishing company. And again, they warned me it's la saison humide. It may be a little bit slow. The roads aren't that good during the wet season. But, you know, it's only 150 kilometers. How long could it possibly take? I mean, it was the coast. It's as flat as a board. There's no mountains to cross. So I was like, you know, maybe a few hours or something. And so I was waiting. When the uh, man landed on me, there, there was some confusion. He was a... He was... He was French, a French expat, of which there are many in the coastal towns of Madagascar. He was drunk. And as I said, he was quite confused. We exchanged some words. Um, the words were spoken in a variety of different languages. Uh, and I can't really recount any of them here. <laughs> That's for the best. But we came to a mutual understanding that he had entered the wrong room. And he had also entered the room the wrong way. So he was nice enough to leave out the door and I tried to get back to sleep. And a day later, and I mean a day in the scientific sense, it was exactly 24 hours later, I climbed out of that same bed, unglued myself from the sheets basically, and walked off to go and pick up the truck. I was a bit suspicious as to why I had to meet it at 2 a.m., but that's what they told me. So we loaded on some bags, 50 kilogram bags of rice. Um, they made sure the, the fishing coolers that were in the back, fish coolers in the back were all secure. And I got on, there were a few other passengers and off we went. It was a bumpy ride. It was not good for somebody with a lower back problem, but I was surviving. It was kind of an interesting adventure. We passed, uh, we forded some rivers. We passed on this road that was part sand, part rock. It was kind of exciting. We got stuck in the mud. You know, by hour three, that got a little tiresome, but we kept going. We, we were able to get back out. And then at some point getting around lunchtime, I was told, oh, the truck stops in, in the next village. That's as far as it goes. And we were only maybe like a third of the way. But they said, don't worry, there's another truck. You can just get on the next one. And there was another truck. And the driver was nice enough to say, I could sit next to him. It's like, okay, I'll sit on the seat next to him. Not the passenger seat. That was like an actual seat. Next to the driver, between the driver and the passenger seat, well, it wasn't really a seat. There was no back. And there was no base really either, actually. It was, there was no pad. It was really just the metal frame, like outer frame of the truck. So that was really the only thing between me and the engine block. So it was hot. I, I moved side to side probably once every two minutes to just avo avoid scalding my butt, basically. Um, definitely was not good sitting on a metal seat for my lower back, um, although the heat probably helped a little bit. It was a little bit therapeutic. <laughs> so 
so we traveled on, we stopped in some villages, we unloaded rice, we loaded squid, got back off, and the day kept going on, it started to get dark, and it didn't seem like we were anywhere near where I was going yet, and it became clear that when it got dark, we weren't going any further. So we stopped in another village and said, we have to spend the night here, and this truck, this is as far as it goes. But don't worry, there'll be another one. You can take it in the morning. And everyone was very generous and hospitable. Stayed, uh, they uh, let me stay in somebody's hut on the beach. Um, and they fed us dinner. They fed us breakfast. And, you know, I was all excited about the next truck. And I would ask around, like, hey, sit here. You know, and uh, it turned out uh, no truck. In fact, nobody had seen the third truck in days, which is something you think they might have mentioned earlier. Um, so I was stuck. I wandered off to the beach, started thinking about whether it would be possible to buy one of the local fishermen's canoes and I could paddle it up shore, whether that would be like culturally appropriate to even ask. And uh, someone came up to me and said, oh, you're, you're going to end of a doke. We can drive you almost all the way there. I was like, okay, great. And he had a boat and he was a lovely guy. His name was Dominic. Sounded great. He says, we're just getting ready to leave. I was like, okay. And I you know, ran and grabbed my, grabbed my backpack, ran down to the beach and waited for about five hours, and then we got in the boat, and then we, we took off. And uh, it turned out to be a little bit of a milk run. Um, I think more accurately, I would call it a squid run. We uh, stopped in a village. It wasn't clear why at first, and we got out, and uh, Dominic went up the beach, and they had a little thing set up there with a scale, and he weighed a bunch of squid, and then he gave the fishermen some money. And then the guys loaded, the other guys in the boat loaded into the coolers. And then we got back into the boat. And then off we went again. And so I learned that the reason Dominique was going up and down the coast, he was part of this like massive global supply chain for squid, right? They buy the squid from the fishermen in these tiny little villages, the Vaso people that do this fishing in the coast of Madagascar. They buy the squid, transport it on their little boat on ice, move it onto the trucks. The trucks then move it into the port. From the port, goes on a ship, goes on another ship, ends up on somebody's dinner plate somewhere. Right? And we were just at the very beginning of that supply chain. And so we stop in another village. And at that point, I'm like, well, I'm in Madagascar. You know, when in Madagascar, I guess this is what you do. So I helped load squid and everything. And we did this a number of times. And time passed. And basically, we reached the last village of his stop pretty much right as it was getting dark. We were going through a blasting rain. Um, out, um, out on the ocean. So actually it was at the point where we were cold. Um, land on the beach and this is the end of the run. This is the end of Dominique's run and I'm not actually at the field site yet. So they tell me, you can stay here, don't worry. Just you'll stay in the village tonight and tomorrow morning another boat can take you the last 15 kilometers or so and Dominique and the squid will go back the other way. So it's great. So we walk over to a series of huts and Dominique and I walk to the one he normally stays in, that the village is nice enough to let him stay in. And uh, he looks at the uh, double bed in the village. It's not really a bed, I would say. It's a double mattress on the ground. And uh, I'm sorry, in the hut. And he looks at me and he just says, Sava, and uh, is this okay? And so, you know, of course it's okay. At this point, I'm used to sleeping with, you know, strangers here, so that's fine. And, uh, and so we settled into bed, um, smelling of squid, of course. <laughs> Got up in the morning, people made us a very nice breakfast, and I, you know, asked around, you know, is there a boat? Do you think somebody could just give me a lift up the coast? It's like, oh, no, 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 no boats. It's not possible. The wind's going the wrong way. You can't do it at this time of the year. 
And I surmised from that that there's also no engines that could, that could push someone that way. And so at that point, I was starting to get a little bit desperate. It had been two days, and I was only trying to go 150 kilometers. <laughs> and uh, somebody then said, well, if you wait until 11 a.m., you can take a Jebu. Now, my French, and I'm ashamed as a Canadian to say this, is not that great. So I wasn't exactly sure what they were saying, but I was confident that Jebu was not a word that I'd heard in French before. <laughs> and so I'm like, what could it possibly be? And I kept hearing him say, Jebu, Jebu, Jebu. It's like, Jebu, wait, like, Jebu, like the cattle? Which is like the word they use for cows? And that's what he meant. So I was like, so I'm riding a cow? And I'm like, what's the plan here? And it turned out there was an ox cart and it was leaving at 11 a.m. I don't know if that's the schedule. I didn't look on the posting, but uh, there's no app, you know. And uh, so I was like, well, this is what's, you know, when in Madagascar. So um, at 11 a.m., I loaded onto the ox cart together with the driver, the ox cart driver's son, um, a lovely uh, local guy named Dolph, um, a whole pile of our bags. The cart was only about three by five. It was, it was tight in there. And a 15 horsepower boat engine. I don't know why the engine was there. I really wanted to ask somebody, couldn't we just be using it? But it didn't seem appropriate at the time. I was happy that at least there was some sort of transportation. So we go off in the ox cart, we cross at low tide, and we're back on our road. And it looks like we're actually finally getting there. But an ox cart's not the most comfortable thing in the world. And we're bouncing over these rocks on the road. And it is just killing my back. And I was like, I can't believe it. I'm almost there and I feel like I can't take it. And so I jump out of the ox cart and think, I'll just walk. It's not going that fast anyways. And then of course it picks up speed. So I start running beside it. And I ended up running basically the last 10 to 12 kilometers of this trip, <laughs> holding on to an ox cart, just so it didn't, you know, they didn't get away from me and everything. And, and I basically looked like a Malagasy secret service agent protecting the ox cart, right? You know, so, but we got there. It took in total 60 hours, and that's six zero hours. And if you do the math, and I'm a scientist, and I had a lot of time to kill, so I did the math. It's about two and a half kilometers an hour, which is what I probably could have walked. <laughs> now, and if you count the days I was waiting in the town just for the truck, I actually could have swam there. <laughs> but it was a great trip. And what's fascinating about it to me all these years later, this was over 10 years ago for me, as in now, what I do at UBC, I've been doing field research for a number of years now, and I've done projects in a number of different countries in all sorts of different conditions, and I've had to negotiate for boats, for trains, for planes. I literally tried to stop a 737 from taking off once because it didn't have our gear in it. And I've done all these things, and I have photos of this, you know, just all these great memories all around my office. And so they're all on the office walls. And there's one photo that's kind of out of place and it's not on the wall, it's right next to my desk and it's of the truck, the very first truck. And I like looking at that photo because the truth is, I don't remember anything I learned from that field project I visited. And I was there for like six weeks, I think. But I remember this trip really well. You know, and that's the thing about science, right? These days in science, we're so there's so much obsession about the findings. You need to get their publication out. You want to make sure it's getting attention. But science is about the process. Science is about the journey to the findings. It's not. It's about how you got there, right? It's about the steps that you took, right? And that truck always the truck always reminds me that that is about the journey. It's about the journey, not the destination. Thank you.
That was Simon Donner. Simon is an associate professor of climatology in the Department of Geography at the University of British Columbia. He teaches and conducts interdisciplinary research at the intersection of climate science, marine science, and public policy. Simon is also the director of UBC's INSERC-supported Ocean Leaders Program and is affiliated with UBC's Institute of Oceans and Fisheries, the Liu Institute for Global Issues, and Institute for Resources, Environment, and Sustainability. His efforts at public engagement on climate change have been recognized with an Aldo Leopold Leadership Fellowship, a Google Science Communication Fellowship, and the UBC President's Award for Public Education through the media. Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and me, Aaron Barker, with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, as well as Paula Croxon, Liz Neely, and Tracy Rowland. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat and the Anza Club for hosting these shows, and to myself, because it's my birthday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>